Good evening. This is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to Radio Evolve, our bi-weekly global webcast for consciousness and culture. This week with us is Bayo Akumalafel, uh, our friend from originally Nigeria, but now living in India. Bayo, you are here in the radio. Hello. Hello, I'm right here. Thomas. Hello, Great to hear you, Bayo. Uh, Fantastic to have you on our radio show. Uh, if I may say uh, some uh, some words about you, uh, you are originally uh, from Nigeria, but you're living with your wife and your children in India right now. Yes. And uh, you are a poet, if I may say so. Uh, you are you are an activist. You are a speaker who speaks globally. Uh, in different continents, and you call yourself also—at least that uh, what you told me in one of our pre-conversation—is spiritual activ spiritual activist. Mm. Um, I would like to start with uh, why do you call yourself a spiritual activist, and what do you mean with that? Mm. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. It's great to be here. Can you hear me? Good. Yes. Yes. Everything fine. All right. Um, well, if you, if you look at the history of Western thought, it, it, there was once a time when, and I think we're still living in the eddies of those moments when the sacred was externalized, pushed out of mm -hmm. the picture of the frame and, um, uh, being a citizen of a nation state that was the recipient of colonization, uh, we also started to see through the lenses of our colonial masters, which is that the sacred is disembodied or that the sacred is, dis is at a distance from the material mm -hmm. or, the, or the pertinent or the immediate. Um, so, so in a sense, reclaiming the sacred is one of the um, profound imperatives of uh, that most people will read into the energies of today's world. Mm -hmm. and, and by reclaiming the sacred, I do not mean um, uh, I do not mean it in, in terms of the religious, um, not necessarily in that sense, but I mean a sense that things are things are wilder, wider, and much more. Um, at the risk of this word being abused, uh, much more magical mm -hmm. than our our ideas and our ways of understanding and making and producing knowledge would would be able to accommodate. So, a spiritual activist in this in the sense that I think I use it would be someone who understands that um, the human is embedded in a mesh that is larger than himself that the ways we've understood agency and cognition and what it means to be human and alive needs to change. And this changing of our form, of our figure, of our outline, if you will, um, is an act of sacredness. It's an act of meeting the other beings in the room. It's an act of meeting flowers, uh, meeting trees, or meeting mountains, and meeting the so-called environment and understanding that there is much more happening there than we understand. Mm -hmm. So, so that's in some that's some sense of framing mm -hmm. that phrase. I know you you speak to a lot of uh, topics, and uh, decolonization is definitely one thread that goes through uh, the topics you speak to. When somebody would come to you and say, "Hey, Bayo, what is your work about? Uh, or what is, what is really?" <laughs> Uh, what is really thriving you? What, what, what's your fire? Uh, what do you do all this for? Uh, do you have an answer? Yes. Well, it, it's a, it's an answer that is. Uh, it my answer might sound like a series of muttered questions. Okay. Uh, <laughs> more questions, but if I could frame an answer, then maybe it would look something like this. Um, there is there is there is a sense in which we understand. Um, things that are done that people appreciate in the world as coming from a pure place. Um, like, um, why did Mandela 
do the things he did. Mm-hmm. He fought he fought for the freedom of his people. It must have come from a love of his people. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think I think my own at least I can speak for myself. The things that I do today when I write or talk or speak maybe have an origin. When I use the word origin very sparingly and with great hesitation, but maybe have some kind of an origin in my pathetic teenage years when I couldn't really get by being a successful teenager. If you understand teenage success as being popular and being, and being able to be socially active, I was uh, pathetic. I would spend more time in the library than I spent with human beings. And um, I was for all intents and purposes, a nerd. And, and, and so I remember walking down to my room while an undergrad in, in my university in Nigeria, walking down to my room and passing people who are obviously having a good time, uh, pairs of people, you know, around me. And I su- suddenly had a visceral experience of, of being in another world altogether, mm-hmm. like of, of noticing that there are other Earths, if you will, or other planets out there. I just had a sense of, and I can't really explain it, but I, I had a sense of, uh, of, of smallness, if you will, that there, that there are possibly other natures out there, um, that we don't even have words for. Uh, it, and, and maybe in some senses, I'm still living off the, the steam of that very particular event. Uh, what, what I do is I'm, I'm constantly in search of new natures and I'm uh, constantly learning about how we critique and make sense of the fact that nature isn't fundamental mm-hmm. or the way, or the way we understand the world and practice the world into being today along with the non-humans around us isn't fundamental or essential. The way money is framed isn't essential to, isn't fundamental. It isn't iconoclastic. It isn't permanent, so to speak. Um, The way education is framed, the way schooling is framed, the way economies are framed are not arbitrary, but they're emergent. So that gives me a sense of hope. That's my driving sense of hope, that the world could be framed rather differently um, which leads us to other questions on how do we then do it? But of course, in this light, decolonization for me is about noticing the multiple where we have been told once before that there was only the singular. So decolonization is about saying, hey, look, there are other things on the menu that we, we couldn't even see before because, of course, scene is political. Mm-hmm. So it's it's about noticing the other things on the menu that that they were, that were not available before, that were invisible to us. Mm-hmm. But this is, this is the real invitation, I think, of decolonization, of stepping out of the frames or noticing how the frames are not as fixed and permanent and final as we would, as modernity would have us believe they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about right. uh, decolonization because I find it very fascinating and it makes sense to me that one way to understand what decolonization is about is the discovery uh, of, of multiplicity, the, the yes, discovery yes. of the other. Yes. And, uh, uh, colonization, uh, at least uh, to a big degree, is uh, the kind of uh, insistence on this one particular modern view being the view that has to penetrate the world. Uh, this modern uh, Western view that is basically what the world is about, and I find it, I find it very intriguing. I mean, look, uh, uh, you come from Nigeria, you are in India, yeah. uh, I come from Austria. I'm as, Europe- as European as you can get, <laughs> uh, and uh, definitely something is happening with the world right now. Uh, right. Uh, it, it, let's say Europe is kind of. Um, Questioning itself, uh, mm. questioning its role. Uh, Europe, at least, or the whole West, uh, is uh, questioning uh, our 
a particular paradigm that we develop for ourselves and uh, by colonization for, uh, for the whole world. And at the same time, we are also in a situation where after 500 years of Western dominance, all of a sudden uh, things are changing. Uh, there, are, there are other cultures just showing up at the table uh, like, like China, like India, and yeah. say, uh, oh, wait a moment, it's great, it's great you're seeing this all that way, but uh, there is a different perspective on all of that. Yeah. And somehow, uh, at the same time, uh, we are kind of growing together in, in unbelievable speed. I mean, that we can talk like this uh, as we do yeah. via technology is just one little item of that we are, we are forced to live together globally somehow. Mm. Somehow we have to create something like a world culture or world culture, uh, uh, w whatever it is. Either it will be a clash of culture or it will be a dialogue of culture. Uh, mm. or is, do you think that understanding is possible? Is it, I mean, I, I come from a very, uh, this Austrian Alpine, uh, uh, Central European uh, paradigm uh, on one hand, it's uh, it's easy to kind of um, see that Nigeria is a is is this uh, huge country in this troubled continent uh, south of Europe in Africa. The other perspective I can have to have this romanticized view of the uh, uh, of, of of the untouched African spirit. But these are all kind of protections from my uh, European point of view. Uh, yeah. How can we really communicate uh, with this different uh, background that we come from? Can yeah. we really communicate? Or is this just kind of uh, we, we, we exchanging messages, but basically uh, we, we are living in different worlds? Right. Um, so, okay, let me, let me, it's a whole new, it's a, it's a gigantic apparatus of inquiries that you've introduced into the mix um, let me see if I could gain an entry point mm -hmm. with with telling. It's not it's not exactly a story. It's just an it's just just a moment in just something about how I was brought up. So I don't know if this this applies to non-African families, but um, growing up with my parents, obviously, um, my um, my mother and father took pride in the fact that they could pass signals to us just by looking at us. Now, there was nothing, <laughs> there was nothing psychic about mm -hmm. it. It's just that we were trained to the point, to the point of being able to detect when they wanted us out of the room. You know, it, it's, it's something, it's something most Nigerian comedians, you know, speak about and riff on most times we could just look at them and we know that, okay, this is the point where I get out of the room. Um, mm -hmm. and, and maybe that dives, that, that jives a lot with the, uh, with the Yoruba idea that there are some things that cannot be known, you know, and mm -hmm. there are some things, there's some places you cannot go to. There's some places you must not approach. Uh, um, so this is not for you at this time. In fact, if you knew it, it would not be useful to you and it could even be damaging to you. So this is like a thick place in the universe. So we were, we were trained to understand a thick moment. When my mother looked at me, I knew get out. That's what, it, that's what that meant. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, I think, you know, I speak from a neo materialist perspective, which in a word or in a, in a sentence, understands the world as um, being as emerging from both um, and I don't even want to say both but the material and the discursive so there there isn't the the usual way in which we divide mind and matter uh, does not play here because wherever mind is matter is already implicated wherever matter is mind is already implicated it's almost like a panpsychic view of the universe, that everything is alive, everything is vital, everything is agential, um, that the world has a say in its own becoming. So I speak from that perspective when I say, I don't think decolonization is about, um, is necessarily about 
um, discovering the other. Um, there, there've been uh, colonization was exactly about discovering the other. In fact, it was about the otherization of the other. Mm-hmm. When the when those ships came and docked uh, in uh, you know in, in Africa or, or in the place now we, we we call Lagos right now or in Benin, mm-hmm. um, it, when they came to our lands, um, it, they were discovering us in a sense. They were mm-hmm. categorizing us. They were making us. I think decolonization is something is a soft, there's a nuanced difference here that mm-hmm. I would like to in, introduce to our conversation. It's not so much about discovering the other as it is about noticing that sometimes we may never ever know the other. There's a grand possibility that we will never come to full understanding of the other. Mm-hmm. And I, and I mean it in this sense too, that there might be the possibility that we don't even know ourselves. Mm-hmm. That we are not boundaried and delimited as modernity would have us believe. We are emergent, we are tentacular, we are spread out, we are diffracted, we're contingent. If I were to say, what, what makes Thomas Thomas? Mm-hmm. A modernist might come in and try to look by some reductionist uh, method, try to look for the essence of Thomas, maybe by stripping away all your parts until he comes um, to some atom that kind of is representative of you. Um, and the postmodernists by look at it and look at the frames and the differential power systems that make you you and all of that, your identity. Um, but what we are learning about the world today is that what makes me me is still, is still not, is always to be postponed, if you will is always to be deferred. So there, we are, when I say decolonization means that we may never know the other, it means that um, understanding is always to come. Knowledge is always to come. We already living in a cosmopolitan kind of world right now, you know, where, um, you, yes, you say I'm, in, I'm Nigerian, I'm married to an Indian. Uh, my wife's cousins are... Chinese, she's part Iranian and English. There's already, there's already a crazy mix of stuff, Mm -hmm. right? And, and uh, postmodern values invite us to embrace inclusion. Bring more to the table. Bring more people in. Basically, that's what we're doing right now. Let more people have power. Let more people have this and that. But, but the decolonization framework that I struggle with or I'm Mm -hmm. navigating is basically about opening up other places of power, of noticing that our identities, our identities are constantly being challenged by a material world that is always emerging, evolving, challenging itself. A teenage world that is not done with itself. So um, my identity is, is not complete. I'm not done. Um, what does this inspire? Not not merely multiplicity, mm-hmm. not merely inclusion, but diffraction and chaos and weirdness. It, it, it invites us to consider that my blackness already includes whiteness. Mm-hmm. It invites us to consider that the things that I've demonized are saintly in themselves. It invites us, those of us who are championing new paradigms, to return to old texts to learn about the new. It invites us to notice that light is already diffractively entangled with darkness and you cannot understand darkness without light. So this is the messy entanglement embodiment that we're taking note of. Um, That is somewhat different from a mere constructivist notion of a cosmopolitan world that includes the many. It's not just about the many here. It's about the uh, the manifold that is already entangled together, mm-hmm. so to speak. Let me uh, uh, let me use this to to really um, uh, ask you about something that I always experience when I talk to you. Right. You, uh, always, uh, uh, you bring me to a place that maybe you can call this messy entanglement. And the appreciation yeah. of the chaos and the appreciation of the weirdness. Yeah. Uh, I usually uh, uh, in our co- in our conversation I have the experience 
I, I try to, to understand something and basically you attack my attempt to do so. <laughs> uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's why I invited you. Uh, uh, yeah, why, first, is that so? And second, if, if, that's, if there's something to this, uh, to my, my perception, why? What are you going after in doing this? Um, uh, when I was uh, doing interviews to get into the university uh, to become an undergraduate student, I distinctly remember the interviewer um, saying, so why do you want to study psychology? And I said, because I want to know everything. And he looked at me and said, uh, you, you mean you want to know most things or some things, right? You, there's no one who can know everything. And with a stoned face, you know, with my eyes really, no, I don't mean stoned in that sense. I mean that I was steely eyed and I was really damn serious. And I looked at him and I said, no, I literally want to know everything there is to know. I was this off world nerd who had no idea of human interaction and just had my head buried in the book. And I cannot emphasize that enough. And so I'm coming from there. Um, the, um, you know, why I said that is because at that point in time, I was still, I was still operating with an understanding of, you know, this world that Einstein describes as elegant, this world that um, might be like, you know, like the ocean, is rough and tumbly and chaotic on the surface, but in, in the depths, there's this elegant calmness. And, and his idea was that basically um, reality is, is defined by a set of fundamental, inalienable rules and regulations that we cannot sidestep these rules and regulations, which is the reason why he was really pissed off at Niels Bohr. Mm-hmm. Uh, by when Niels Bohr came along and said, no, 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 it's basically all chaos. And Einstein revolted and said, God does not play dice. And mm-hmm. it's it, the world I operated in was a world that was regular. And I wanted to understand the, the eternal, unchanging dynamics of this world. Mm-hmm. If I could tap into the grid, into the Wi-Fi of the cosmos, if you will, mm-hmm. then I could understand everything. Mm-hmm. everything is understandable then i could know everything but to to notice that to notice that uh, and and thank with great thanks to women's studies to feminist analysis um even to post structuralist and post colonial thinking we now know that that kind of framework was deeply patriarchal um in its guise of being neutral and apolitical many bodies were oppressed Many lives were made invisible. Um, but moving away from that, um, it, the, the, the idea here is that knowledge is, you know, the, previously we could say that we could stand outside the world and in some external fashion understand the world. But now that we're understanding ourselves as deeply embedded within the world, materially embedded and embodied in the world, not just that we're in the world, but, but, that, but that we're what the world is doing. Now that we're seeing that, it is possible to note that knowledge is not always going to be available. Mm-hmm. That knowledge, that there's no outside point of view. There's no external perspective, no privileged standpoint from which to gain knowledge of everything. So there's some things that will not be known. There are some things that we cannot, the old American gusto where we could explore everything, you know, it's not just American, it's continental, Euro-American, you know, that, that we could explore everything. Nothing is too sacred mm-hmm. for us to topple, not, no stone too sacred for us to turn over. Mm-hmm. That, that is being challenged by the world itself. Mm-hmm. You know, progress was our mantra. We could explore the entire world. We could change everything. We could set a clock that and make it universal. We could 
we could do everything if we could scale the if we could think it we can do it basically mm-hmm. but but climate change comes into the picture and challenges us and says not so fast mm-hmm. uh, it, that's not how it works mm-hmm. so we're noticing we're noticing and this is a grand noticing and it's also a small noticing we're noticing at some collective but jarring level that our attempts to speak the world into being to convert the entire universe into text into meaning into understanding mm-hmm. is being challenged by the world that resists understanding some things mm-hmm. will not be understood some things will not be made sense of just like and 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 I apologize to listeners who might find this uh, distasteful but I would go ahead and say it just like shit um our colonial attempts to convert shit into um things that could be used you know waste plants in the US or in Europe the things that could be further uh made into some kind of process or resource in a in a utopian cycle of continuity uh and i wrote about shit recently mm-hmm. in an article I, in, uh, you I, read it right yes <laughs> <laughs> how shit resists our attempts to colonize it how it resists uh, meaning and all our systemic you know points of view so i think the world is like shit in some way um th- there there are some parts of it that we will not understand and that's because we are not swimming above the world we are what the world is doing and uh, just to just to finish this point you know it's just like a wave it's like a wave trying its its best its darn best to to understand the ocean but in understanding the ocean in reaching out to touch the ocean an ocean you're already a part of you're changing the ocean so there there is no privilege knowledge perspective that we can hope to gain any longer mm-hmm. and that's the gospel of these middle times mm. if you allow me uh being the yes. being the european uh that i am uh I, which which is which is not a bad thing Thomas it's a beautiful I, thing no, I'm 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 completely behind being european that's just of course. I, uh, yes. I, I love it and I hate it at the of same course. time but I, basically <laughs> I love it uh, uh, but uh, being being that uh, I still see myself trying to understand you uh and, tr- and try- trying to understand where you come from and what i do see uh i i, I because you came back to this twice or uh, even three times uh, there is this teenager bur- buried in the libraries uh and uh with this deep conviction to know everything mm. and something happened uh, uh and you you're talking about the resistance of the shit if i may say so yes you you, you talk about uh being uh embedded in the uh, there's also use a uh, word to use all the time uh, in the in, in the material reality of this world yes uh and the way you talk about it you talk about this as an uh, experience of liberation also as an experience of liberation of this young teenager who basically seem to have lived quite a while in in the libraries of of wherever these libraries were yeah why is this a liberation um it is not liberation in 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 terms of it being um on you know you know on um unbridled freedom like um it, the image i get is not one of flying into the sky like an ubermensch mm-hmm. uh, uh, a, a, a new superman uh, being able to gain in a new position of of a new perspective with which i can colonize everything again and that that's not the image i i i get when i think of liberation the liberation i think of now is the liberation of entanglement of noticing that the burdens the what what some writers will call the white man's burden uh to to understand everything to convert everything to save the world mm-hmm. is is no longer a burden that i have to bear mm-hmm. i literally wanted to save the world when i was a teenage nerd and i would not say i would not even speak as if that is behind me mm-hmm. i i i cannot you know th- this is another sense where where we're coming down to earth brother mm-hmm. and we are we are 
we are losing our sense of superiority. It, it, we may not be able to articulate it as such. At, we may not have the language for it, but there's, a, there's an insurgency of vulnerability that is stealing among puddles and pockets of humans, human people and <laughs> non-humans that is reminding us that we are part of a larger whole and we don't get to say or determine the way the world works. And, and, and with our ongoing attempts to transcend the world in terms of modernity, mm-hmm. even in terms of AI right now and in terms of our hoped for future, when we are when we are transcendent, we have moved away from emotionality, from affectivity. We've conquered uh, mortality. Uh, we've drank from the we've drunk from the fountain of youth. We're, it, it, all those hopes and desires are being challenged by a world that goes wrong all the time. And it's not just Murphy's law in the laboratory. It's a world chastising chastising our attempts at transcendence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, um, so liberation in this sense is, is the liberation of a wave, noticing that it is part of the ocean. And its previous attempts to transcend the ocean, um, it's suddenly free from it. Um, it. Liberation is the liberation, you know, that, that maybe the uh, trickster tortoise felt and this is a brief story. The, the, the tortoise uh, is, as you might know, West Africa is very prominent in West African folklore. Mm-hmm. And, and one of those stories goes like this, that the tortoise wanted to gain everything, know everything. And so it went to the eagle and spoke to the eagle and took the eagle's knowledge of flight and put it in a gourd and tied that gourd to his neck. It went to the caterpillar, went to the mountain, went to the entire world, so to speak. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Just like he converted, like Google wants to do today. It, he digitized <laughs> knowledge, the entire planet, and put that knowledge in a calabash, you know, and hung that calabash on his neck. Now, the next thing was, where do I store this so that no one has access to it except me? Because knowledge is power, right? And so he, he decides to hang it and hide it in a palm tree. Now he has the, the, the item on his chest, but he, he has very stumpy and short legs. So he cannot wrap his, his arms and his feet around the, around the tree successfully with the calabash in the way. So he struggles and struggles to climb, but he cannot do it. And then this grasshopper wanders by and says, you know, you could just put the calabash on your back and make it up to the tree. And he goes away. And Tertius realizes his folly in that moment that maybe this is a failed project from the start. Maybe knowledge is not out there. Maybe knowledge is in between, not out there to be gained and externalized and objectified and fetishized, but in between, in the moments that are always emergent. Mm-hmm. And so he does, he successfully climbs the tree, but he releases knowledge back into the world when it gets back to the tree. That's the kind of liberation I'm speaking about. The liberation of knowing that we don't live in end times. We have always and will always live in the meantime. We live in the middle and we have to know how to live in the midst of worlds, in the midst of others. Others we may never understand. Others we may never colonize. Others we may never include. But all the same, we have to learn that we live and abide and are made in the orbit of others. There are two things I, I wrote down while you were talking. Right. Uh, oh, oh, in fact, there are three things. Uh, when you were saying the world is going wrong all the time, hmm. uh, the amazing experience listening to you is it sounds like a good thing. And, uh, (laughs) and you mean it's a good thing. And somehow related also to your story, uh, that, uh, when you say the knowledge is in between. Yeah. Um, that, that, that there's something, uh, in that is a good, good thing that, the world goes wrong all the time. And basically it's when the knowledge is in between, you do something with the understanding of knowledge that uh, doesn't fit to our usual understanding of, 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 of knowledge. 
why why is this a liberation or what is this liberation about um i wouldn't frame it as a good thing or a bad thing that is okay. also um um i would frame it as a sensuous thing mm-hmm. um so so here's here's the cracking that that is happening today for instance, when we speak about um, innovation or innovation cycles, we, we usually think of an inventor coming into the picture, having an idea. And I was director of an idea fund um, when I went back to university to teach. Um, uh, and um, the, the, the narrative that we ran with was that if people would only have brilliant ideas, we could save Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, all we need to do is inspire people to catch an idea, you know, like a catch a butterfly. And once they have these ideas, we would generate products from these ideas. Um, but I think if you really study the way some of these things work, even the history of the products that are sticky and are quite meaningful in our lives today, um, you would find that that's not how innovation works. <laughs> or, or in a sense, we don't invent anything in the sense we understand the word invent. Just prior to our conversation, I was reading um, uh, an essay or a news report. Um, I forget the name of the CEO of Twitter. But the CEO of Twitter, I think he's Dorsey or something, Dorsey, Jack Dorsey. Um, uh, he's regretting it seems like he's regretting the invention of Twitter. Of course, with what the president of the United States is doing with it, um, uh, there, there are many people who feel Twitter is only enabling the worst of the worst, the trolls, the abuse online, um, and all of that, the racist language. And it, there, there are many people who feel Twitter has only been bad and not as good as we think it is. And, and, and most of the thing, you know, he, he, he felt we didn't kind of anticipate that, but that's, that keys into the myth I'm trying to disrupt and many people are disrupting today, which is we don't invent anything. It's social processes that, that invents things. Um, uh, penicillin didn't come by pre-planned or anticipatory, uh, practices. It came by accident. You know, the internet wasn't intended as the internet. Alexander Bell didn't create the telephone. I mean, the telephone right on your desk right now. I assume there's one on your desk, Thomas. Yes. Um, I'm sure if uh, Alexander Graham Bell saw that, he would not recognize it as the telephone. It's become a Swiss knife of sorts. And it, uh, it's just a cloud of everything. And, and, and so it's social processes, social material processes, that makes things, not human beings. We're only embedded in this stream. And, and the idea that we, we are inventing stuff or that we need to invent the future collapses every time we notice that the world also has a say. So this is the sensual, sensuousness. I was about to say sensuosity, which is a good word. Um, this is the sensuousness that I speak of, mm-hmm. um, that the world also contributes, uh, that the the object of subject verb object thing is not as object as we think it is it is also participate it, it, it also participates in the emergence of the world uh, let me ask you a question thomas mm-hmm. um I, and i saw this great example online some time ago if i held a camera to you um and took a picture of you it's my camera right who is the author of that photograph? Imagine it's a Polaroid. So let's, we can make it quick. Who, who is the author of the, the shot that comes out of the camera? Uh, if you ask our legal system, it's, it's the one who has the camera. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So our legal system, our legal systems make the cut where uh, in the entanglement and using Karen Barad's framing makes the cut uh, and says it's the person who owns the camera, but that already occludes and makes invisible the contributions of the so-called object. Because just by moving and posing, I am initiating new gestures on your part. 
uh, the, the photographer. Just by moving and swinging my arms, I am moving the camera as well. And let's not forget the contributions of the lens itself. It's not just dormant. It's intricate. It's complex. Without the camera in there, there is no picture. And let's not forget the moment as well. The moment that in, invites us, hmm, this feels like a Kodak moment. Let's take a camera, let's take our, whip out our cameras and take a photograph. The moment also contributes to it. This is the messiness that we speak of, mm -hmm. that there isn't some kind of agential monolith in the mm -hmm. world, which is the human. There are other things that make the world go round. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in our own limited estimation, Going around means going wrong, hmm. but 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 that's not all there is to it. Hmm. If I may, if I may come in here, uh, listening to you and still trying to understand as European as I am, uh, this is an interesting experience because somehow, uh, at least in the in the last minutes, it, it more and more came to me. I'm not talking to bio here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm not talking to bio. I'm talking to the lens of this camera. I'm. 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 I'm, I'm, yes. talk, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the shit. I'm. I'm. I'm talking to uh, this Polaroid, whatever. Uh, just telling yes. me, hey guy, I'm here too. Yes. 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 Indeed. Yes. Indeed. Brother, that's it. It's. It's the. It's the noticing of other things in the room. It, it, it's like thinking of a parenthetical remark. Uh, a, a set of words in a bracket and then uh, suddenly removing that bracket and then you, you spill into the entire sentence. It's noticing the largeness of the sentence around us mm -hmm. that is the magic of today, the terror and the beauty mm -hmm. of these moments. So yes, 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 go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but, but also honestly, uh, this is quite an irritating moment because I'm, I'm looking around <laughs> I'm, I'm looking around in the room here where, uh, where I'm sitting in this, it's, in fact, it is kind of a library. Uh, yeah. A lot of books are around and, and things around. And basically being with the conversation that we're having right now, all these things start to talk to me. Hey, I'm here too. There and, you go. And <laughs> I, I, I kind of see how I usually, uh, I'm not living in a reality where they talk to me and tell me that they are. And, and particularly not that they are intervening with the world as you're telling me. Yeah, uh, and it it kind of reveals a relationship that I have with all these things around me. It's uh, mm. kind of stuff that I deal with, mm. uh, that I put in the world. In fact, I I put this library here. I put these books in the shelves and and mm. and, 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 and all this kind of. But but what what you are telling me, this may be so. Uh, but uh, uh, all this stuff that you are seeing are. Uh, is kind of you entangled with that in a way that you are not aware of, uh, yes. and uh, don't think that basically it's just you who is acting here. There's much more going on than you think. There you go, brother. So, so think of it this way as well. Um, who is the tool and who is the user? Um, the phone and the man. Who is the user and who is the tool? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, uh, there's this Disney cartoon that I love a lot. Uh, uh, is it The Hunchback of Notre Dame? And, mm -hmm. and the beginning shows the uh, um, it shows a guy singing. I can't quite remember all the characters and all of that. But he asks a question. So he's setting the plot. He's pontificating about uh, about France in those times and all of that. And then he talks about one bad character who he calls a monster and the other who he calls a man. So he, he asks the riddle, who is the monster and who is the man? And I just found that intriguing because going through the subway of New York, you know, mm -hmm. on the train one day, um, I just looked to my right and looked to my left. Um, and I saw everyone, literally everyone down the line. And you know the way the thing snakes through the tunnels. You can sometimes see far off into, into the distance mm -hmm. and sometimes you cannot. And, and I, at some moment, I could see right down my line, every single person, head bowed, looking at their phones. Mm -hmm. Not one person was sitting straight up. Not even the old people. Everyone had their faces buried in their handsets. And, I, and for, 
And for one, and I've had many of these moments ever since, mm-hmm. but for a solid moment there, I realized that those Hollywood flicks about some cyborgian future where we are indistinguishable from robots are not future, um, are not archetype, future archetypes or tropes after all. They're actually here now and present. We're cyborgs right now. The idea that we are using our phones is laughable. In many senses, our phones are using us. Uh, <laughs> yes. wait, wait, wait a moment. Wait, wait a moment. Uh, because you're changing, you're changing the picture right uh, right now. At least for me, uh, okay. I'm still ar- looking around. Uh, uh, I'm still seeing all the things. I, I'm hearing your story about you in the subway in New York and uh, all lying down. Everyone being clued into their phones. Uh, but all of a sudden, what seems seemed to me before is kind of a liberation to re- realize that I'm not the master of the universe, even not in this r- little room that I'm sitting in yes. here. And, and, and basically everything is involved, not just me is involved, uh, becomes right now much more dys- dystopian, uh, 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 creating a cyborg reality where some, some whatever uh, in, in, in Silicon Valley is programming basically my daily behavior by cluing me into my mobile phone. Uh, that mm. so- sounds much less liberating to me than the story before. <laughs> okay, so let, let's put it this way. that the uh, um, And I use cyborgian with respect to Donna Haraway I will, uh, and her brilliance. Um, uh, there... When I, when we speak about um, entanglement, for instance, and decolonization, when I speak about it, um, I, I usually give reference to uh, what uh, quantum physicist and feminist theorist would uh, Karen Barad would would understand as a blurring of boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, modernity makes great. Um, uh, makes great fanfare about finally understanding where to put things. Like this atom goes here. Mm-hmm. This person goes there. Um, white people are this. Black people are that. This kind of weather occurs at this time and not at that time. So what what's scandalous to the modern mind is when things move and shift away from their allocated boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. And And that's what we're noticing. Um, with the world around us, um, that things actually move scandalously, perversely. They move. The agent suddenly becomes the used, and the used becomes the agent. The tool is has more powers than we assign to it. You could you could think of the photographer in the earlier example. Mm-hmm. You could think of the books that we read. You could think of uh, Derrida saying that the author is the reader of the book. You could think of all these examples and notice that where we have allocated objects, there's some kind of insurgency right now. There's a rebellion and the world around us is making its claims, staking its claims on the fact that it also contributes to the world's emergence. So that might seem, that is irritating. It's like hearing all the voices at once. But the thing is that we never hear all the voices at once. Because that's not that's another uh, that's another rush into modern modern uh, houses or modern frameworks. The the fact that I'm saying the world is alive might seem irritable or irritating, and might invite persons to close their ears. But that's not the that's we're always in specific circumstances, and some things work by other things not working. So, for instance, if I ask you a question, what is light? Um, uh, from this mo- um, materialist framework I'm, I'm using and giving respect to Niels Bohr, um, Niels Bohr would say that light is either a wave or a particle depending on the apparatus used to measure the phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. So that the phenomenon is not external to the thing that is being measured. The, the phenomenon, I mean, the, the, the apparatus is not external to the thing being measured. It is part of its creation. So, but light cannot be both wave and particle at the same time. Once it's a wave, it excludes the possibility of being 
uh, a particle. And once it's a particle, it excludes the possibility of being a wave. So he called this idea complementarity, mm-hmm. and it works by exclusion. So the fact that um, uh, the world is entangled doesn't mean everything happens all at once. It means that some things happen only because some things cease to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like ghosts that haunt our worlds and our ideas and our movings and our matterings. So the world works by this exclusionary dynamic, a complementary dynamic. So it, um, it, I don't know if that answers the question, but uh, it, it's at once liberating. But I have to admit, it's also politically stultifying because noticing that we are part of a world and we don't have the final say might feel liberating to the one who no longer feels the urge to save the world, but it could also feel politically stultifying to someone who feels an immediate need to address some trouble. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the messiness that I speak about here. But I don't want us to lose sight of specificity and particularity. In, in that messiness, though, uh, and, yes. and maybe we, uh, this becomes more specifics, uh, I would like to ask you a question that maybe for, for, from that perspective that you are kind of uh, showing us here doesn't make any sense, but I ask it anyway. Uh, uh, everything being as it is, uh, and I'm still looking around in, in the room and still all these things are talking to me, uh, uh, what should we do? Is there anything to do in this or is this just, uh, why is this what you're describing something uh, that uh, is in itself an, an important emergence and what does it mean for our being human and is there anything to do about what to do with this? Um, this is already the wrong question. No, <laughs> I, I understand and I, I appreciate you noticing that um, uh, the asking that question is already on the mind by the fact that the, the things we're talking about here where the notion of agency and doings and stuff like that. So um, it, it, let me put it from this perspective. Uh, the, um, I, I, I've been part of a, a project that is uh, facilitated by UNESCO. And there's a radical friend of mine in UNESCO who is a futurist mm-hmm. or, uh, or has worked with futurists. And, and started this project around um, a f- what he calls futures literacy. And basically the idea is simple. Hey, it, he, it says um, there are particular ways we anticipate and use the future um, in, in how we frame the present. Mm-hmm. And those ways are really consequential. Those things we do are consequential. We don't notice it. Our deeply held assumptions about the future impact today. Uh, impact the present. What if we made those assumptions explicit? We could come to an understanding of the things that we're doing right now. So um, in a room, for instance, and I was part of the facilitating team for this kind of adventure, what he calls uh, no lab. Um, mm-hmm. And um, some youth were gathered and the question was asked. I, I, I fielded one of these questions. Um, what do you think of the world in 2050? Or mm-hmm. what do you think of the, the 22nd century? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what would that look like? Close your eyes and imagine it. Mm-hmm. And as you might imagine, and, and I guess listeners might imagine if you do that, you probably would imagine flying cars. Uh, maybe Apple will have the Apple 158, or there would be some new... Um, robots in our houses doing the chores or something like that. There, there are some particular ways we think about the future uh, that we don't really understand how we came to that understanding mm-hmm. or how we came to those frameworks, but we just know that we, we tend to think about the world that way. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the work of this lab that I speak of is to make explicit those assumptions. Mm-hmm. What are the current deep on the line myths that we that are, you know, enacted in our framing of the future. Mm-hmm. Once we come to understand those things, the theory is that we can now have different kind of capacities to make new changes in the present. 
But I, I went by way of um, Dr. Real Miller's Futures Literacy Project uh, just to make, just to emphasize this point that your question about what we do is not to be dismissed. I, I would reframe it in this way, that what does this do? What does this idea do? What mm. does it enable and what does it disable? Mm. Um, what, what, what does or disenable? Okay, uh, if I may come in here. Uh, yeah, yeah. L- let me play this back to you. Uh, okay. Because uh, I, 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 I find it quite enlightening what I hear from you. Okay. It, it, it seems to make me uh, give, give me a deep, deep understanding of, of what, you, what you're up to. Because as I understand this project that you were involved in in, in the UNESCO, are uh, just uh, speaking out about uh, the, the future that we uh, basically are sure or expect to come. Yeah is already creating, uh, uh, has an impact on the presence. Let's, uh, very, very, very simple. The, the, right. this, this already inhibits the miracle to happen because, yes. the, because the linearity of my expectations are already having an imprint on the way how I act uh, in the presence. Uh, yes. Or, just making this conscious, uh, you use a simple word, makes the miracle possible that otherwise would be prevented by my expectations from the future. Right. I, I agree with that 100%. So it's, it's it, it, like you say, making miracles happen. It, just the expectation, as you, as you name it, already predisposes me to behave in certain ways. And, and that's, the, that's the limitation of being human. It, it frames my behavior, my thinking, and because, remember I spoke about complementarity. Mm-hmm. In behaving in certain ways, I am locking out other ways of behaving. I am shutting, I'm reducing the menu of my activities to a limited set of responses. Now, most people think of activism today as uh, protesting on the streets, mm-hmm. holding a placard. That's the image that might come to many people's minds when they think of activism, someone mm. who is shouting at someone else. Mm. But, but many people may not think of activism as washing your, the dishes or listening to one's grandmother or learning from a tree mm. or sitting still in sunlight. Those things don't look like activism at all. But mm. what, if, what if that is a form of activism? What if that is so actionable that it's probably more impactful than going on the streets. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's not to dismiss going on the street. That's not to make it less important. Mm-hmm. But it's to, it's to definitely say that we are seen as political. Mm-hmm. And there are some things that we notice to the exception of other things that are possible. Mm-hmm. Seen, yes, yes. Um, so I, I, uh, let me come back to something that uh, uh, we said in the very beginning of our conversation. May, right. may I ask you about spiritual activism? Mm. And uh, after this hour, we are basically at the end where, where we are right now. It seems, okay. it seems to me uh, that I have a very different understanding what spiritual activism is about in the way you understand it. Because uh, particularly what you say, said in the, in, the, in the last 10 minutes, I, I hear you as spiritual activism being uh, 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 liber- liberating the miracle. Mm. liberating the miracle by preventing uh, uh, my expectations to dominate uh, the, mm. the, the reality so that something in the entanglement as it is, uh, is allowed to come around in a way that I have no idea how it is. Uh, but allowing the miracle to be needs my participation uh, mm. in order to really um, be uh, be itself, or, uh, or, or be a part of the world that we are creating together. Is that something that you could say in this way, or is this kind of a, a weird angle to take on your spiritual activism? Um, so it, uh, let me just uh, say that the, the spiritual part is not added to. It is not added to the activism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you might you might think of spiritual activism as saying a prayer before I hit the streets mm-hmm. or having some kind of religious practice before mm-hmm. I, I do what I normally do. 
that's not the sense I that's not the sense I with which I'm using the term spiritual activism, sacred activism, or as I prefer, post activism. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that's not the sense I'm using it here. Um, the work I do with the Emergence Network, which is an organization um, for, uh, the, let me just say, in the context of our conversation, mm-hmm. the liberation of activist responsivity. Um, uh, the, the work I do is is about opening up other places of power, opening opening up other places of responsivity, and so that other modes of engagement are possible. The, the spiritual part is 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 not like something imposed on the activism as much as it is a noticing that the world is constantly moving and we are embedded in it. That's the spirit, that's the spirituality of it there. Um, the sacredness of the world is that it's, it's not still. It is not still. It is constantly evolving and emerging. Mm-hmm. So how do we respond to a world that is not still? How do we lay our finger and identify the problem? Um, um, Karen Barado said that there are no solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is only a coming alive and an accountability to a world that is mm-hmm. constantly emerging. Mm-hmm. That's the way I would frame it. By VR, the, the end of our time, you did uh, you did mention the Emergence Network. There is also a net presence of the Emergence Network. I just don't have the address at hand. Uh, can, can you tell us uh, the address of the Emergence Network online? It's it's emergencenetwork.org, emergencenetwork.org. And uh, as I've been there, there, there's much more of your work and your thinking. And uh, Bio, um, you uh, you definitely managed to entangle me in this in in, the, in this conversation. Uh, <laughs> and I I think uh, there 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 were some moments where. In the chaos that you were creating in my mind, uh, there were some, some significant moments where I see, wait a moment, this is a different way how to look all about this and what, uh, what the meaning is for this. And I, I find this very, uh, 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 very empowering to, to see and to, and to, and to hear you in this way. So thank you for this hour. Uh, thank you so much, Thomas, for inviting me. Thank you, everyone else, for for listening uh, to us. And I hope it was uh, for you as interesting as it was uh, for me. And, uh, yeah, good evening here in Frankfurt. Good night. It's late night uh, in, in, in your place. And good whatever where you're listening from. Thank you very much for listening to Radio Evolve.